As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realised it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Hello and welcome to season two, episode one of the page one podcast. Yes, welcome back or hello for the first time. Uh, thanks. But for no welcome if you're new. Well... No, let's welcome them as well. Okay, we, we like to be welcoming to <laughs> everyone, uh, at least until the subscriber numbers go up a little bit. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to download the Page One podcast. Uh, if this is your first time listening to the Page One podcast, what we like to do here is uh, speak to writers of all kinds, whether it's authors, screenwriters, comics writers, video game writers, or any kind of writer, and uh, find out how they broke into the industry, what the writing process is, talk to them about their love of writing, and... Uh, their work. Yeah. Both uh, myself and Tarek are keen uh, writers and the idea behind it is that we want to speak to some of the writers that we admire the most to find out really what makes them tick and, and how they broke in and what we've found is that there's a real variation in, yeah, yeah, in absolutely. all of that. Um, but we have a very exciting guest for you in this first episode, uh, David Baldacci. One of the world's best-selling thriller writers. Yeah, he's sold over 130 million copies of his books, which is quite unbelievable. That's quite a lot, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just a few more than me. Um, <laughs> I'm on zero, so he's got 130 million head start. <laughs> You'll catch up, I'm sure. Um, and his work's been turned into films. I think his first book, Absolute Power, was yep. immediately turned into a film with Clint Eastwood and Gene Hackman. Pretty much every writer's dream. <laughs> so that's not a bad start to your writing career. Uh, he's had famous characters such as uh, Amos Decker and most recently Aloysius Archer in his new book One Good Deed which we speak to him about on the podcast. David was kind enough to come and speak to us when he was in Edinburgh on a book tour. I think when he came in he was slightly wondering who the hell these two <laughs> Muppets were. <laughs> but uh, Mic'd up to, and ready to go. He seemed to uh, enjoy it by the end of the podcast but we'll let you judge that. Word of warning. We did record this in a hotel bar in Edinburgh and at one point some of the uh, hotel guests come in and they're a little bit rowdy and they're a little bit loud. Some of the loud. loudest people in the world. <laughs> and it was pretty obvious we were recording a podcast because we had microphones on. But they chose to communicate only by shouting across each <laughs> even though they were sitting across a small table. Uh, but Marco quickly uh, kicked them out. Yeah, I managed to, but there is a bit of... What all of that is to say that there's a little bit of background noise uh, one point uh, towards the end of the podcast but uh, it doesn't last for long yeah so um anyway hope it doesn't ruin your enjoyment of the podcast and we'll be back at the end of the podcast see you later you've got a connection to barga in italy yes um my family's from my my dad's family is from Barga. Well, yeah, my so. grandfather was born and raised there before right. he immigrated. Oh, wow. So, 
I went there a number of years ago, and they sort of had a David Baldacci day in Barbados. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I think I actually remember the, they had, like, banners up and oh things like God, that. Oh, my God. A marching band, and, yeah, I was... My wife was pretty shocked. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's a it's a lovely little place. But it is, yes. Mm-hmm. It's tucked away right in the mountains there, so yeah. it's beautiful. Um, so I suppose the way we structure this normally is to begin at the beginning, if you like, and how you got into writing to begin with. Was it something that you always wanted to do from when you were a little child? Yeah, I um, I was a voracious reader, and I think people who read a lot always think about you know, writing something because they enjoy, you know, reading words so much to create your own stories. And I was one of those kids, you know, I grew up in an age where there was no internet, no cell phones. You you know, you entertain yourself by using your imagination, going outside and coming up with all these different worlds. Um, And my mom gave me a journal when I was seven or eight years old that I started writing in. And back then it was very rudimentary, obviously, but it allowed me to have a, you know, sort of a place where I could write down things that I was thinking about. And, you know, I, I started, um, in my mind, I had no grand plan to be a mystery thriller writer. I just wanted to write stories. Um, and I started writing short stories. Because for me, they, they were appealing for two reasons. One, they were short. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you could finish something. I mean, for a beginning writer, you know, a 400-page novel is pretty daunting. Yeah. And 99% of the time, people who attempt that as their first writing endeavor run out of gas. Mm-hmm. And I've had so many people come to, you know, book signings and events and say, you know, I just tried to write, tried to write. It was just so overwhelming, you know, 50 pages in, and I, had, I couldn't think of where I wanted to go. So a short story allows you to, you know, write 10 pages and be done, but at the same time teaches you everything you need to, to know to write longer format. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to create a story, have a narrative, a plot, characters, dialogue. And the other thing that's good about sto- short stories um, there's no place to hide mm-hmm. your weaknesses. Yeah. In a 400-page novel, you can cruise a little bit, fudge a little bit, not bring your best on every page. But in a short story, you don't have that luxury. And so you started with the short stories. At what stage? I suppose, it, and you've been a lawyer as well, I think. Yeah, I, I went to college. I, so I wrote short stories when I was in high school, college, law school, sent them out to lots of places. There aren't that many venues for short stories mm-hmm. anymore, and certainly not for unknown writers, and had very limited success with that. And um, to show you how securitous my writing career was, I had a friend who went out to Los Angeles to break into film as a producer. He came back and brought a script with him. Never seen a movie script before. Um, and read it. Thought it was an interesting way to tell a story that would be started out as writing on a page and then end up as pictures and sound on a wall. Didn't take any courses of screenwriting. I just kind of jumped in with both feet and, and learned my way. And I wrote four or five screenplays when I was practicing law. Got an agent in L.A. based on that. I had uh-huh. a script called Reverse Order. It was kind of like, this was early 1991. There was like Die Hard on a Plane. <laughs> you know? And uh, But it was actually, you know, Air, Air Force One. Remember Air Force yeah, One yeah. and all that. So my, my Die Hard took place at the White House, where terrorists took over the White right. House. And this was long before, you know... The movies, so and Warner Brothers and Paramount and Universal, they all thought it was a great script and the way I had gotten people in and what happened while they were there and getting people in there to try to save the day and um, and it, at the end of the day it, it didn't sell. You know, one uh, studio passed on it, and it's sort of the herd mentality out there. If one studio passes, all the other studios get nervous, thinking there must be something wrong. Mm -hmm. The thing about Hollywood is nobody ever gets fired in Hollywood for not making a decision. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, They only get fired for making a decision. It turns out to be bad. 
And uh, so after that, I, I was like, well, this is, you know, that was really, really disheartening. Um, and then I thought, well, um, let me try, you know, sort of the Holy Grail, a novel. Mm-hmm. And I worked in Washington, D.C. My office was near the White House. I would pass by it. I would see, I think, Bush 41 was president back then and occasionally see the motorcade, Secret Service agents. And then I thought, let me, you know, what would be interesting for me to write about um, a novel where I flipped all the stereotypes. I made all the bad guys good guys and the good guys bad mm-hmm. guys. So I had a burglar who was my hero, and the Secret Service and the president were villains. And I wanted to see how that played out. And I spent three years writing Absolute Power, yeah. and then that really changed everything. Did having an agent for the screenplays help in the pitching of that to publishers, or did you have to sort of start from square one again? I started from square one again. Yeah. Um, the people I was dealing with in Hollywood really, I, I didn't, you know, it's not like I didn't respect them, but mm. they weren't in the public square where I needed to be. So um, after I'd finished writing the novel, I um, I tried to be as clever in finding an agent as I was in, in writing a novel. Mm. And uh, I would always be on the lookout for first-time novels that hit big. And then I would go down to the bookstore and look at the acknowledgement section because they always thank their agent. <laughs> and I got a list of probably like six agents that way. And that told me a couple of things. One, all these agencies accepted first-time novelists. A lot of them don't. They'll only take writers to cross over yeah. in their career. And two, the agent had enough wherewithal and uh, fuel in the tank to shepherd a first-time novelist through the publishing gauntlet. So I sent the manuscript up. Um, with a very, very, very short query letter because I tried to learn the business. You know, they don't want to read the query letter. They want to read the manuscript. So the query letter was very simple. I'm a lawyer in Washington, D.C. This book is about the president, a burglar, a cover-up, and finally the truth comes out. I guarantee if you read the first page, you won't put it down until you read the last one. And I said that last sentence was was very sort of strategic in that, one, I figured if I couldn't have confidence in my, my material, why would they? And two, I knew that half of them would read it just to prove me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a bold line to put in it, because often it's I read very, stuff saying, don't put stuff like that in I, I went for it. Yeah. Because I, I was like, I had nothing to lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, none of these people knew me. And But I, I, you know, I had worked on that first chapter over and over and over again for years. And... Um, I remember Bill Goldman, the screenplay writer um, who wrote the script for Absolute Power, and a two-time Academy Award mm-hmm. winner. I mean, the guy's a legend. Um, had often has been often quoted as saying the first hundred pages of Absolute Power is the first is the best hundred pages of any thriller ever written, mm-hmm. and that's how you know you hook people. Yeah. yeah. Um, because if you don't, I, I know all the slush piles. I know how many submissions agencies get, and. They're good people. They're professional. They want to find the next great thing. Mm-hmm. They absolutely do, but. If if they're they're not going to slog through a hundred pages, if you don't catch them and hook them and suck them in in the first fifteen pages, you're just out of luck. Yeah, it's nothing. Nothing really. It might be the book's great after that, but it's just about time. Yeah, you know they don't have the time. Yeah, and an opening to to that book is it's kind of unusual in the way that you kind of show the crime completely, and it's it, the whole book's not about trying to uncover what happened. It's about trying to cover up what happened. That's it's right. An interesting twist on that. That's right. It, it's a cat and mouse. You know, the, the burglar has what they want, mm-hmm. and it shows how they try to get it, and how he tries to stay one step ahead. Um, that opening, you know, the opening chapter where the crime is being plotted, and then he goes out to the house and sees what he sees, and then escapes from it. You know, I, I just, I thought to myself, look, if, if that doesn't grab you, then I'm in the wrong line of business. Yeah. I might as well not be a writer because obviously I have no idea how to tell a story. <laughs> <laughs> and you wrote that while you were 
a lawyer still. Yeah, yeah I, I had a family, and mm -hmm. I was married. We had one child at that time. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't take the starving writer out. Yeah. I, had a, I had a mortgage and bills mm -hmm. and babies. and So my time was um, I would write any second I could get. I would write usually in the middle of the night, 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock mm -hmm. in the morning every day for seven days a week did it for years. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds draconian, but and the other thing I get at book events when people come up and say, you know, if I just could find the time to write, I know I could do it. And I try to be very encouraging. I say, that's fantastic. Thinking in my mind that you're never going to be a writer. Because if you really were meant to be a writer, you would find the time mm -hmm. to do it because it would be such an obsession with you that you could not not do it. Yeah, absolutely. And so at what stage did you say, right, that's enough law. I can now, I can now focus on doing <laughs> this. For the yeah, law yeah. yeah I, I stayed on at the, my law firm for another year because... Um, I had no idea if the book was going to be successful. I always also knew then that the publisher had taken a big shot. You know, it was a big advance. A lot of publicity. If the book tanked, I was never going to get another deal. That's just the way it's going to work mm -hmm. out there. It's much like anything else. If they pay big and you bomb, goodbye. Yeah. You know, and good luck. Uh, so I stayed on. I was... Uh, Right away, started writing a second novel because, again, I just wanted to have a career as a writer, and the way you do that is you write and mm -hmm. you create, you know, content for yep. people. And then it got to the point where I was working five days a week as a lawyer, and then four days a week, then three days a week, and finally I thought near at near end of the year, and the book is going to be coming out, and I was going to have to tour and all that. That I sat down with my wife and said, "Look, you know, I think I have the wherewithal to build a career as a writer." Um, and I'm going to take the plunge. I'm, I can't be a good lawyer and a good writer all at the same time now anymore because it's not like I was just writing in, in you know, obscurity now. I had, I was touring. I yeah. was going to tour. I mm -hmm. had a lot of obligations. Um, so I said, and if it doesn't work out, trust me, I can go back and be a lawyer. You know? <laughs> so I've got the skills to be able to do yeah, that. Yeah, it's a good fallback position to yes. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, definitely. And then, and, and was, it, was it a big hit straight away? Did you find that you were, it was easy to switch that? It was a big like, hit straight yeah. away. Went right top of the bestseller list. Um, sold, I mean, just publisher extremely. They paid me a lot of money. They made more money off of Absolute Power than I can even say. <laughs> because it just sold millions and millions and millions of copies. And then when the movie came out, it sold millions and millions yeah. more. Yeah. So. And that must have been a crazy experience seeing your your first book being turned into this massive film. Yeah, it was. Know, and Hackman. That yeah. must have been fantastic. It was. It was a great experience. It almost never happens that way. Mm -hmm. you know, oh, totally, yeah. All the stars had to be in alignment yeah, for that. Yeah, um, uh, but that was just, you know, the moment when everything clicked. Mm -hmm. um, and But I tell, you know, I tell writers coming up that don't get too obsessed about the film or television component because that's a whole other business. Yeah, yeah. It's a million cooks in the kitchen. You have no control over it. And if you obsess and micromanage, um, then it's just going to turn out badly and you're not going to be focused on what's important, yeah. which is writing another yeah. novel. Yeah, yeah. other writers that we've spoken to have sort of said the same thing, that you have to just hand it over and in, safe in the knowledge that your book is always there. It's always there. To go yeah. back to. The, the only other thing you can do, and I've done this with the last three or four film projects that I've that have come to fruition is that when people come to me, producers, director, whatever, I sit down with them and I and I just have a very frank conversation. I want to see if their vision for the material aligns with mm -hmm. me. And that's the only protection you really have. And most of the time they're honest because they're putting out there, you know, what they want to make this how they want to make this movie or this yeah. T V series. Mm -hmm. And I've turned down people who whose vision has come out and has not been aligned. And I said, you know what, this is your idea is great. It just is not where I want to be right now with this. Yeah. And so I walked away from it. And that's worked out better for me. 
Um, and then once you find the person and you pull the trigger and they start to make it, then you really need to step away. And the litmus test I use has served me well. And every writer I've told this to has said that's some of the most brilliant advice I've ever gotten. Here's the rule. As a writer, you never want to have so much control over a film project such that if it fails, they can blame you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yes. a good that's, that's good advice. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And trust me, they will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, if you can say, well, the book was a big hit, so if anything went wrong with the film, it was on your side, that's your clean, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And you've, you've obviously written a huge number. How many is it now that you've written? Yeah, I think adult, adult thriller novels, um, 40, mm-hmm. um, and five or six books for younger readers. Yeah. yeah. And so do you have quite a disciplined process when you're writing? Yeah, it's disciplined, but in an atypical way. I, I don't count words, I don't count pages. Um, I have an office outside the house in Northern Virginia, and I go there. I have a staff of people. I, it, I'm a business at this point, mm-hmm. and, you know, I have, People help me with scheduling and business matters and marketing and social media and all the other stuff that goes into being, you know, a, a writer at a certain level. Um, so I go there every day when I'm in town, but I write everywhere. Um, I write, I'm writing in the middle of this tour. I write in the back of a car, on a plane, on a train, in a hotel room, by the pool. Um, and I write every day until my tank is empty. So I don't, it could be zero pages, one page, 20 pages. Um, and the next day it could be totally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do know going along, like a book I'm in the last uh, stages of finishing, um, it w- the probably four weeks ago, it was a real slog because I was at the point where I had maybe 50,000 words written. And now I was at a crossroads about I had multiple ways a plot could go. And then it was you know, like three or four weeks of intensely just thinking without writing anything about yeah. Where do I need to go with this? I have all these options. I have a million different balls in the air. Which, which is the best one? And that comes from not outlining everything from A to Z. I have a lot of writer friends, John Grisham. You yeah. know, I've known John forever. And John outlines everything from page one to page into the mm-hmm. novel and doesn't write one word until he's done that. And that works for him, obviously. That does not work for me. I've always felt like if I wrote from an outline, it would read to readers like I wrote it from an yeah. outline. Everything's a little too neatly packaged together. Whereas... Books should mirror real life, and real life is a little unsettled, a little messy, a little more chaotic than that. And, and I mean, I've, I've said this before in the podcast, but, <laughs> um, you know, part of the pleasure I find in writing is when your characters do something you didn't even expect them to do. It, Absolutely. It, it's, it's that unpredictability yeah. that's part of the enjoyment. I have, you know, I have a character named Amos Decker. He's my memory man, mm-hmm. very quirky, very just... You know, unpredictable in so many ways. And so I could not line the first Decker novel because I hadn't even spent any time with him on the page. Mm-hmm. And outlines are great, but you don't get a feel for your characters in an outline. You just don't because that's just bullet points telling you what they're going to do, what they're going to say, the clues and all that other stuff. But to actually have a feel for them on the page, how they interact with people, how they breathe, how they think, how they move, you don't get that until you start writing. So it took me about a hundred pages before I actually got to know the groove that Amos mm-hmm. Decker was in and how I wanted him to yeah. be treated as a character. Yeah. So do you kind of have an idea? Do you do you sit down and say, like, this, I've got a spark for what, what I want to do, and you just plop your character in it and then see how he fares? I've done it both ways. I've done it where the plot has come first, and I've created characters to inhabit that plot. And I've done it where I have a character, and I want to build a plot around them that are sort of uh, intersects neatly with the abilities they have. Mm-hmm. 
so um, some of my standalone books, you know, like the winner, the winner was my third book. Wrote it, in, you know, I think it came out in 1998. It's about a villain named Jackson who figures out a way to fix the United States national lottery, and he does it chemically. Um, which great thing about chemistry is that if you couple A with B, you get C not 80% of the time. You get it 100% of the time. Uh-huh. In fact, there was a lottery scandal a few years after the book came out in Italy where somebody fixed the Italian national lottery using a method very <laughs> close to the one I wrote about. And I got grilled about that from the, you know, La Repubblica, which is Rome's <laughs> largest daily newspaper. I was like, wow. And when they asked for comment, I said, well, you know, my first comment is that's bad. Very, very bad. I would never encourage anyone to fix the lottery. But my second reaction was that is like the coolest thing yeah. I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. So that was a that was an idea where I had I want to build a story around somebody who fixes the 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 national lottery, and then makes it sort of a Faustian bargain where they can they go to somebody and he would always pick somebody very poor in a hopeless situation, and he would go to them and say I can make you rich, all you have to do is play the game. Now it's not legal, but no one ever know except you and me. Do you want to play or not? Yeah. And then I create a character to have that story. And when you you've got you've got sort of different characters that you follow through uh, some of your books, how do you decide? Oh, I'm now going to do an Amos Decker story or an right. Archer story. Or some of it comes down to just the practicalities of trying to establish a character. So, um, I for a while I had the King and Maxwell and the Camel Club series, mm-hmm. and I I wrote I think five or six books with each each of that set of characters. And then, all of a sudden, you come up with an idea for a new character. I had John Puller, who was my military investigator, and then all of a sudden, it was like a shiny new toy, and you sort mm-hmm. of run off in that direction and immerse yourself in that world. And then it was Will Roby, this professional hitman. Again, another shiny new toy. So the King of Maxwell and Camel Club, I kind of, you know, not that I'll not ever bring them back again, but they were sort of set aside mm-hmm. because I had something else that was new and fresh and exciting for me. Um, and I also wanted, if I were, if I'm going to establish them as characters, you have to think a little bit about the business and the in the in the sales side of this. Is okay if I want to make people really uh, love uh, John Puller or Will Roby, then I have to consistently present books with them in there. I can't write a Will Roby and then go back to writing King and Maxwell and Camel Club, and five years later I produce another Will Roby. It's just not going to have that connection yeah. with people because they're going to want it. And if they don't get it after a year or two, then they're going to forget about it and move on to something yeah. Yeah. else. So after that, then I had with the new character of Amos Decker, then that was my shiny new toy uh, for a while and, and still is. And then uh, Atley Pine came along, a female FBI agent, and that was so intriguing to me to write from a female perspective as a lead protagonist. I have lots of females in my books, mm-hmm. but never never the lead protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Aloysius Archer. Mm-hmm. Um, that book just, uh, that was only intended to be an e-book short story. Um, right. okay. 60-page short story. I started writing it when I was on tour for Long Road to Mercy. I don't sleep well in hotels, and I get back from touring and media and all that, and I just wanted something to write at night while I was on yeah. the road. <laughs> And I love the 1940s. I love crime and the war. You know, Raymond Chandler, you know, Dashiell yeah. Hammett. Um, and, uh, but once I really got into the story and immersed myself, the pages flew. I, you know, I wrote a 420 page book in about three months. Right. Wow. And it just, um, I was on fire with it. And, but that was an anomaly. That was not planned. Right. Yeah. That's, a, that's one good deed you're talking about, which is the most recent one. And, uh, yeah, I've read it and it is, it's very, very evocative of that time, but, and also, takes you immediately to Chandler Hammett, that sort of world. It, you know, it's very good at setting you in that world. 
and obviously this Archer's a very good lead character who I suspect even though it, it was only a 60 page ebook originally um, might we might see more of him yes future. he'll definitely come back I'm already yeah. thinking about the next one he's a wanderer so he'll move on to another yeah. place um, uh, but that was that allowed me an opportunity to really be more descriptive I had to be descriptive and set you in the time period of, I couldn't make you think you were in 1949 the book was not going to work mm-hmm. and the only way to do that is really to describe that world that is foreign to a lot of people you yeah. know where there, there's no internet there's no cell phones there's no really the modern conveniences that we take for granted none of that exists um, and I have to show people that it was just a different life but at the same time you know create characters that they care about have a mystery that is befuddling and then they mm. can try to figure out um, and have some action and all that but basically for me it was almost an allegory where here's Archer he's not even 30 years old and he's fought in a world war almost died went to prison two of the most traumatic things could happen to a person <laughs> has already happened to him and he's not even 30 years old and then he gets out and he has to spend his parole time for three years in pocket city and pocket city for me for him was really his purgatory mm-hmm. so you go there and you're going to figure out are you going to take the right path or the wrong path yeah. um, and that for him was the challenge yeah um, and, and when you sit down to write these these books and suddenly this book becomes much larger than you than you thought it was how 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 do you how many drafts do you do do you, do you put a draft on you think actually this is pretty much ready or do you sometimes spend ages doing tweaks yes it it can really vary and i, I will say with the one good deed um it was a lot because again i had sort of planned out in my head it was going to be a short story then when it wasn't and took on a much bigger structure there was a lot of work that had to go into that to fill that out and i had to go back and do more research as well because i had more you know more uh, indicators in that life that i needed to explore you know there were going to be more characters he was going to travel around more do more things and so i had to sort of know all the pieces yeah. together and that was a lot more research than i had initially intended um, so sometimes it's um i've written books where the drafts i've lost count of the drafts yeah. because there have been so many of them others you know have come out in the in you know first three four drafts uh, and at the end of that it really is in a pristine condition and do you still do you ever get to the stage of starting a draft and just go this this just isn't working and just set it aside completely absolutely i have i've done that um there was a book i wrote years ago called last man standing it was about an fbi hostage rescue agent webb london and I wrote 150, one of my longest books, 150,000 words. Um, turned it in in March, and my agent and people at the publisher were like, you know, this is this is not you. This is not how you normally write. The story's not that good. It's not it's up to the standard that you would expect. Mm-hmm. And they were right. And it was I, I had some extended family members who were having traumatic times, and I was called in to kind of help over a period of months. One because of my legal background and other things. So it was very it was. I was unfocused. Yeah. And I remember getting their comments and going, you know, they're right. So I went back to my office and one day I cut like 140,000 words. Wow. And uh, I had 10,000 words left and I had to turn the book in. Really the dead, you know, the dead, dead, deadline, if you want to come out in November, I had to get that book in in, in about two months. Wow. So I, in six weeks, I refocused and um, wrote another 130,000 words. Wow. I know it sounds ridiculous, but... That shows you, one, when you focus, and two, when you're really up against the deadline, what you can do. 
Um, but I do not recommend doing that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and do you do you ever? It sounds silly given that uh, <laughs> how many books you've written. But do you ever get writer's block or anything like? Oh, that? all the yeah. time. Anybody yeah. writer's block is you know, it's sort of a misnomer. Writer's block is just another stage in the creative process. Everybody gets it, and anybody says they don't, they're lying to you. Um, and it's all about uh, even people who outline. I suspect. Um, will come to a point in the novel where they look at the outline, they look at what they've written, they look at the outline and go, yeah. it's not feel right. Yeah. And then what I do is I do a couple of things. Either I've, I'm a big dog person, so I've got a couple of beautiful dogs I love, and I'll go off for a walk with them, or I'll go and take a shower. And I, I have to tell you, I have solved so many plot problems in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> it's extraordinary. It really is. And it's like when the water is on top of you, your mind just goes... And all of a sudden, the subconscious is, is turbocharged, yeah, yeah. and then out pops a solution. It's happened to me with the book I'm writing right now. It's happened to me like five or six times during we've, the course of it. We've, we've chatted to folks who've said, said the same thing, that it, often it's when you don't think about it and your mind's on something else, your subconscious works on it and then throws something to the front of your head and you think that's how I'll solve the problem. That's right. I, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. And it's not even an epiphany. It's almost like, because an epiphany is sort of indicates that you had never been thinking about it, it just popped up, but... An epiphany is kind of like your subconscious has been working mightily away on it. Your conscious mind is not really aware of it, and all of a sudden it mm-hmm. just throws it up to your conscious mind yeah. and says, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go take a holiday. <laughs> well, I mean, how do you come up with the, with the starting idea then? Do you, when you, when you think about, okay, I want to do a new book, do you research stuff? Do you read the newspapers? What is it that sparks that initial idea to think this is the new book? A lot of things will go into that. Um, for the book I'm working on now, it's another Amos Decker, so... Um, the location is in a, a north central state of the United States, a very rugged, unforgiving uh, place. But there's an amazing economic boom happening there, uh, ha- having to do with fossil fuels. And it's turned the fortunes of the state around and actually made, is a big part of the reason why the United States is now energy independent from the Middle East. We're actually an uh, oil exporter now. Um, but there were a couple of other intriguing elements in that state that I just read about it and didn't read it about it together, but I read something over here, something over here, and then found something over yeah. here that's really intriguing about military installation that I could make a lot more, you know, esoteric than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Religious organization that was very close by. And then all of a sudden you have those disparate elements and then you start to think about how can I bring those together into a compelling story and then put a character like Amos Decker and, um, to drive it forward. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I, I, people ask me, you, you know, are you ever going to run out of ideas? And I joke and say, yeah, I was born with 42. So I've got <laughs> one, one left, and I'm really clinging on to it. Um, this is the big one. This is the big one. This is, I'm, this is how I'm going to go out. Um, I, but you need to continually uh, replenish your creative idea tank. And the way you do that is you get up every morning and walk out the door. Uh, you read as much as you can read about all sorts of different things. Be curious about life. Watch people when they're walking down the street. See how people interact. Create something memorable out of something that seems very mundane. Mm-hmm. Um, I love walking down the street and just imagining what people are actually doing and what yeah. they're actually talking to each other, where a car is heading or why a window is open in the building. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it, asking that question, you know, what could that be if I threw in a little bit of fictional pixie dust? It's amazing how your mind can just run. I was on an NPR show... It was a live show, so it was a radio show live. We're walking through the streets of Washington, D.C. with the, the, the host. 
And one of the questions, and we were right across the street from the White House. He said, I've heard that you get your ideas as walking down the street. And I said, yeah, I often does. And he said, okay, for our live, live national audience, <laughs> do it right now. So, pressure. Yeah, you know, the pressure. So we were right across the street from the White House, and they had a bunch of people, um, uh, uh, tourists, taking pictures through the wrought iron fence. And that day, for whatever reason, the National Park Service was there replacing a dead tree on the grounds of the front of the White House. So I said, okay, the tourist over there, you see the tourist over there with a hat on taking a picture, and you see the National Park Service guy in the uniform over there. That's not a tourist. He's not really taking a picture. He's signaling to the National Park Service because he's an inside head about an operation they're going to take to do something bad at the White House. And it's been a long-term mission. The mole inside's been there for a while. And this is the <laughs> communication level. So the, the host was like, that's that's not that. <laughs> and and like two you know two years later, I actually used that piece yeah. in a book uh, that I wrote. It was a Will Ropey novel. Um, because you just never know. It's all about if if you're a creative person and your imagination is is, is good, you can look at pretty much anything going on around you yeah. and imagine something different. You know, if you just put your mind to it. Yeah. And what you said, you're a voracious reader. What, is it only thrillers you read, or do you read across all? No, I read everything. I read. I love biographies. Uh, I love quote unquote literary fiction. When I was in college, one of my favorite writers was John Irving. Uh, wrote everything that John Irving wrote. Um, big Agatha Christie fan, Conan Doyle fan. Um, so I grew up reading mysteries and thrillers. I remember reading the first Sherlock Holmes, and it was Speckled Band. I had never heard of Sherlock Holmes. I had never heard of Conan Doyle. I was like 11 years old. I read that story, and I finished it, and I was like, wow, I hope he's written something else. <laughs> <laughs> just, just Turns out he has. Yes. <laughs> and is there any kind of rules as you write that you like to stick by and everyone's heard kill your darlings etc do you kind of abide by these or do you kind of think mm, you kind of you don't really apply all the time yeah I really think it's situation by situation and I have killed off some characters um, that um, that you know there are no rules and yeah. the only rules are the ones you create as you go along uh-huh. and uh, yeah would I ever think about killing off Amos Decker Probably not, but I would never say never. If the situation were right, and it was maybe the last book I wanted to write about him and go out in a spectacular way, maybe so. Um, I do think you have to play fair with the readers, and I foreshadow and have payoffs all the time. But one thing I tell people at book events, and you know, when I go and do speeches and stuff like that, do not skim my books mm-hmm. because every sentence I write has meaning. And so don't, when you come back and you say, oh, you know, I, how could I have ever figured it out? And I said, you could have, but you skimmed. Clues <laughs> <laughs> are always there. You've always, there. Yeah, yeah. Is, that, is that because you kind of, once you write it, you go back and you, you almost work from the end and see you can plant the, oh, the stuff? I, you know, some of those I plan along the way from start, to, from start to finish, but then the more you think about things, like in this book now, I have been um, in the, the last sort of section of it, and figured out some things along the way that now I have gone back and placed foreshadowing in there uh, to make it all work yeah. right. And I call it putting a pen in it. I mean, you know, I've, I've written books where I've written an ending, knowing it's not going to be the actual ending. So when I when I send it over, yeah. So it's um, and I put a pen. I call it a pen ending. You know, I'll tell the publisher and the agent. When I, I said this is a pen ending. I've got, you know, I'm sort of juggling four or five right now, and I haven't decided which one I'm going to go with. It's not going to be this one. But I just wanted to get up the bulk of the book to them so they could start looking at it and, you know, right. giving me feedback. Yeah. Um, and so you, you've got your novels. Do, do you want to go back? Would you ever want to go back to doing screenplays or anything? Or do you still do that a bit in the background? Yeah, I... Um, 
I used to write screenplays more regularly than I do now. And then when I went on, it was probably about 10 years ago, I started doing two books a year. And that's a pretty full plate. I write yeah. mm-hmm. my own books. I don't hire anybody yeah. to write my books. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I have adapted one of my uh, books for film, uh, Wish You Well. Mm-hmm. And I wrote the screenplay for that. And um, we filmed that. Um, I think there was 2012 and working on a film set. I've been, you know, on lots of TV and film sets, working on a film set in a very rural part of Virginia. Um, and we had a great cast. Um, Ellen Burst, an Academy Award winner, mm-hmm. and Josh Lucas and, um, Mackenzie Foy, who was in the uh, Twilight films and she was in that big interstellar and all that. That's right, She's yeah. a beautiful young actress. I love Mackenzie. I still send her fantasy books that I write because she's a big fan of that. Um, but I remember sitting in a farmyard on a wooden table with my laptop with roosters up my ass, um, <laughs> re- rewriting a scene for Ellen Burstyn to deliver. She's in full costume waiting in front of the camera for this uh-huh. page of dialogue yeah. that I am creating right then. You know, you think that when a script is written, you just hand it over and they make it and there are no changes. That's never how it works. No. Yeah. Changes are gone throughout, and that's why they call them rainbow scripts at the end, because every time you do make a change... In a script, it has to be on a different color paper so that all the different departments are on the same page. So at the end of the day, when you look at the finished script, that's why they call it a rainbow script. Yeah. And they have, it's a very, you may know this, they have a very discreet chronology of the colors you have to go through. Right, okay. And, you know, it's probably like 30 of them. And, you know, you never want to get to cherry. <laughs> and I'm like, son of a bitch, we got to cherry. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is, is, that, is that when you'd like to do more of them? You know, because I would have thought adapting your own books and just, is, that, is, that, is that quite hard to do because you're so close to the source material? It's very hard to do, but you have to go in with the right mentality, knowing I got to cut a lot of stuff yeah. up, and you got to pair characters down. You have to blend characters so three characters become one. A lot of the scenes that you know, for for instance, in the book, there was a scene with a bear, and I had a, you know, we sat down with the filmmakers and all that, and they were like. We just don't have money in the budget for the band. I'm sorry. It's a great scene. And I'm like, nope, done. And then we were, while we were filming, we were supposed to be at this courtroom for two days filming, and then Hurricane Sandy hit and dumped tons of snow right where we were. And so we lost a day of filming. But this is not like much, but it was a 26-day shoot. One day of filming is a lot. But we lost that second day at the courthouse. So... There was a gap in the storytelling. So I had to go back and rewrite the script, the scenes going forward, to fill in that gap. Oh, right. You know? Because it was an operating courthouse, and so we couldn't go back and use it because they had real cases and lawyers and all that there. Um, So you never know what's going to come up. So I would say I'm probably not going to, unless something really hits me and I just feel obsessed to write it, I would probably never write another original screenplay because you could spend a lot of time out there and chances are almost nothing that anything's going to happen with yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And so why waste the time? Yeah. yeah. And I suppose when, you, when, you do a script, when you're making a film, there's so many components that have to, like, you know, the script and the, and the music and the actors' availabilities, and everything has to click to, to make it work well. Whereas if you're writing a novel, you're in control of everything. You are. You're the master and commander. With, with, it's, films are a very collaborative process. And, you know, like The, the Wish You Well, it's a 26-day shoot. Um, the post-editing was seven months wow. of post-editing. Um, and now, thank God, it's it's all you know, video. It's digital. Um, you don't have to splice film anymore. Yeah. You know, it, it's done. Um, but the post editing these days is where you know the really, really heavy work comes in. That takes far longer than it does to film. Yeah. Well, 
I think I think that's largely all the main questions we had for you. But we always we like to end on sort of two different things. One is to ask you just a bit about things like the last book you read. What was the last book that you read? The last book that I read was. Um Actually, it was uh, The Turn of the Key by Ruth Weir, okay. um, which I enjoyed very much. And um, I think I, I think I gave her a blurb on that. Um, you know, she writes very much in the vein of an Agatha Christie, which mm-hmm. I, I enjoy. The, it's, a, it's a really funny story. I was on the Today Show, I think it was the Today Show, in August, um, August or July for, um, they wanted my summer reads, you know, favorite summer reads, five books to read. Mm-hmm. So I had... I put together five books and went on. And I was telling this really cool story about, I recommended, that's what I did, I recommended Ruth's book mm-hmm. as one of my five some reads. And I said, there's, you know, she's hailed now as Agatha Christie of her generation. I said, but before Ruth and in between, after Agatha Christie, another British writer, Caroline Graham, who created the Midsummer Murder mm-hmm. yeah. series, which I love the books, and you know I'm a big John Nettles fan, and <laughs> Tom Barnaby for me is like God. He is just amazing. I, I just love that. And as we've been, you know, we've been touring through England and stuff, mm-hmm. and we go through these villages, and I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is John Nettles. Right <laughs> yes. You know, there are bodies all over this place. <laughs> yeah. So, I, so on the show, I talked about Caroline Graham, and I said I remember an interview with her. She was being interviewed by the BBC, and they were it looked like in the parlor of her home cottage somewhere. And she's was a you know wonderful you know older lady, and she very nice and all that. So the presenter said, you know, Miss Graham, do you know that everybody is saying that you are the Agatha Christie of your generation? And so Caroline sort of thought about that for a second, and she goes, well, you know, if that's the case, I've then I've got a question. And the presenter was like, oh, well, what's your question? She goes, well, if I'm the Agatha Christie of my generation, I, I'd like to know where the money's got to. <laughs> <laughs> Probably one of the single best <laughs> lines I've ever heard in an interview. <laughs> um, and what was the last film you watched? The last film that I watched was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, okay, uh, what were your thoughts on it? I loved it. Did you? Yeah. That, the film was almost, here's my litmus test for films. You know, it was almost three hours long. Mm. I never once looked at my mm-hmm. watch. I did have to go to the bathroom because I had a giant Diet Coke. <laughs> and it was a scene where uh, Brad Pitt was going out to the Manson Ranch. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. And I, I got, and I was I was trying to hold it until he went in and then he was going to see the Bruce Dern yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. And I just ran out and did what I needed to do and then ran back and then Brad Pitt was coming up of it and then that's where he beat the guy up and of, all that of all the scenes to go that's one of the, the tensest scenes right in the middle of the film one of the well, tensest yeah. scenes and I'm going to go back my son hasn't seen it yet I'm going to okay. take my son to see it so we're going to go back and see it together but I'm a Tarantino fan and some of the best dialogue you know you read the script for Pulp Fiction you just get blown away just by the dialogue mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but um, I you know I, I was born in the 60s, so I remember Helter Skelter 1969 really, really well. The whole yeah. country was terrified because they, people thought, he, you know, Manchin tried to make it as a race riot kind of thing, and we were like, although we were all the way across the country in Virginia, people were like, oh my God, you know, what's happening? It's a mm-hmm. revolution. Um, and so the ending is what every person who was alive when all that was done to Sharon Tate and the others, this was... Payback. Yeah, <laughs> I thought the exact same thing. I, I thought the ending was a very, without you know, spoiling it too much for anyone. I thought it was a very interesting way to end it. I thought, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was kind of you know, flipping off Manson and yeah, all of his yeah. people. Yeah, I, I wanted more of the Manson stuff because there, was, well, there wasn't enough of that kind of. I know. Because the, the scene, as, as you're saying, when he goes to the to the mansion bit was 
so good and I was like I would have loved more of that stuff I, I would have too and you know Charlie Manson was only in it for basically one scene oh, yeah. maybe 20 yeah, seconds exactly yeah. I mean it, and anybody who you know wasn't alive back then probably not even know who was a creepy little guy yeah, it was, yeah, came yeah, up to the yeah, door yeah. and even though Margot Robbie didn't have a whole lot of lines well she's so talented oh, I mean, she's brilliant just the yeah. scene when she's sitting in the movie theater watching that was fantastic herself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I've gone back because of that film I had read a lot about uh, Sharon Tate and um, Roman Polanski and all that but I went back and read more about her and she you know what makes it even more tragic is she was just by all accounts the nicest human being you would ever meet and the last person not that you would ever wish this on anyone the last person something like that should yeah. have happened mm-hmm. to you know so that's why it was so horrific but I have to say you know I think Leonardo DiCaprio is always underrated as an actor I know he's one finally got the, the one Oscar yeah. but look He's, he hasn't been nominated for stuff where I thought, you know, he should have been. Um, and, you know, there was one, um, it was the Boston Mobster one where uh, Jack Nicholson... The Departed. The Departed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the best actor yeah, in that yeah, entire film. Yeah. I don't even think he got nominated. Really Everybody right. else got nominated yeah, yeah. except him. So, yeah. And Brad Pitt, again, uh, I think I thought together they were just fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So that's the last film. Nice. Um, and... Uh, we also do a sort of quick fire question, so it's a one or other, so just okay. whichever one you, you prefer. Um, uh, a real book or an e-book? Real book. Uh, TV or cinema? Cinema. The, this is an Italian one. Pasta or pizza? Oh, pasta. <laughs> uh, Clint Eastwood or Gene Hackman? Clint Eastwood. <laughs> That's good. Uh, and one more. Um, would you rather eat in or go out to a restaurant? Go out to a restaurant. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Thank okay. you very much, Dave. Thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Oh, that's a good chat. David. It was, yeah. It, Midsummer Murders, though. Who knew you were such a fan? <laughs> yeah. Big John Nettles fan. I bet John Nettles didn't know that. <laughs> no. John Nettles, he will know now yeah, well, from listening to the podcast. Obviously, yeah, because he's, he's one of Hi, John. How's it going? Biggest listeners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, really enjoyed that chat with David. Uh, and just, I suppose, it, it, it's a, amazing how his career just took off yeah. with his first book. It, it really is that kind of... Uh, dream that a lot of writers have lightning of, in a bottle yeah kind of yeah and it's so rare and I think it's it's nice to chat to someone who it has happened to um, and to see that often it is just luck so much of it is just the right place right time right agent etc although the way he approached is to you know to get the agent as well it seemed to break the rules yeah I know and I, that was interesting because that seems to be the number one rule people say never do this kind of thing and he did, and he, he just did it well, it worked for him and then you know I suppose you make your own luck in a way because oh, it's absolutely. clear from speaking to him that he, you know, works really hard, mm-hmm. treats it like a proper job. Yeah, you know, is writing all the time, coming up with his ideas and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think that is it, isn't it? It is all about writing all the time, and it mm-hmm. is about doing it as a as a proper job and 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 not waiting for the inspiration to strike, but just sitting down and putting words on on paper. Mm-hmm. And and just interesting as well, his inspiration for getting ideas is just to imagine. What's what people in the street are doing? You know mm-hmm. the story about the White House and the yeah, exactly you know, the, the gardener in the White House. It's something I've, I've never tried that, but I've, I've heard a few folks say that go out and sit on a park bench and just look at people passing or having a conversation and 
and write down what you didn't think they're talking about. And that is how ideas start, random sparks that you combine together. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, 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 should, I should give it a go. Well, thanks again so much to David mm, for, yeah. for giving his time Thank you very much. on his tour to, to come and speak to us. We really appreciated that. Uh, and we hope you enjoyed the, the conversation as well. Who have we got on the podcast next week? Uh, next week we have Craig Robertson, who is a Scottish crime author and uh, is heavily involved in Bloody Scotland, which yeah. is a pretty big writing festival yeah, in Scotland. Yeah, it's a big Scottish crime writing UK. festival. And uh, yeah, it was a really good chat we had with Craig, so please do tune in next week as well. Uh, he had a lot of helpful tips. A lot of advice, yeah. Yeah, yeah for yeah. writers. So yeah, really, really Definitely worth tuning in for that one. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, as always, please do like, share and subscribe. Uh, the subscribing is it helps us shoot up the rankings on all of these different podcast apps so we'd really appreciate it if you could do that and also of course it means that you never miss an episode crucial as as well as being on the podcast apps i should say we're also on uh, youtube now Mm -hmm. we've got our own channel the page one podcast channel on youtube if you just search for that yep so please we've just launched it so the more subscribers the better please do go and go and have a look at it yeah we'd really appreciate that um thanks as always to simon stokes for his production assistance uh, and if anyone wants to get in touch with us, they can send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or fire us a tweet, which is at, un- uh, sorry, at right underscore gear. Yeah, and uh, we'll just leave you now with an advert for page one, the writer's notebook that we created. It was uh, successfully funded on Kickstarter and is now available to buy on our online store. And uh, we'll see you next week. See you next week. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one.